Welcome to the Christ Connection Podcast. We are here to help and encourage you to enjoy your adventure with Jesus. I'm your host, Kevin Senapati-Ratna. Let the journey begin. Hello and welcome to the Christ Connection Podcast. My name is Kevin Senapati Ratna and I'm glad you joined us today. My guest today is Carl Vaders. He's a pastor of a local church, uh, but also has a ministry called New Small Church, uh, and he writes on the subject of small churches, and his definition, 250 or less. And I just want you to uh, sit back and enjoy today. Now, you're like, I'm not the pastor of a small church, so why am I even listening to this? Uh, (laughs) Let's go on to the next episode. No, hang with me on this. First of all, uh, one of our missions as a ministry is to engage 100,000 people to pray for their pastor. And as you listen today, you are going to hear about what it's like to be the pastor of a local church, and this will help you as you pray. This will He gives specific advice on how to pray. Uh, but also, you can pass this along to your pastor as an encouragement to them. Say, you know, just send them an email saying, I'm praying for you. Now let's go to coffee or whatever. Just hang, hang with, we talk about that. Uh, and you uh, You'll find uh, some things for you there. Uh, Pastor, if you're listening to this, again, this is a resource that I, uh, to the body of Christ, Carl Vader's, that I really want you to get to know, uh, get get into his material, and uh, be encouraged by it. So without further ado, my conversation with Carl Vader's. All right. uh, Carl Vader's, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be on with you. Hey. I am been looking forward to this conversation ever since you spoke at a conference I was at, and I'm like, I need to have this guy on the show. <laughs> oh well, I, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. Hey, <laughs> right. you're just to give the audience a context because I don't know if I've ever shared this before, uh, and just uh, Carl for you. Uh, when I started this ministry, it's 14 years ago now, I, I had pastored three small churches. Uh, and it was kind of out of the pain <laughs> of pastoring two, three small churches uh, that I started Christ Connection. And I, <clears throat> and I thought about writing a, a book at that point out of that place of pain. And you've written much better book than <laughs> that I wish. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't write that book. I've written other books, but I, I didn't write that book, and <laughs> and that you wrote your book. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it, 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 that's the opposite. It, it, you saying kind of like I wrote the book you wish you'd written. Quite frankly, I wrote the book I wish someone else had written 30 years ago, because uh, <laughs> that's what I could have used. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> You're, uh, just again, as, as we're getting warmed up here, uh, your context is writing about small church uh, things. And uh, right off the bat, uh, there's a quote by Carl George that you say, half of this continent's approximate 320,000 Protestant churches run about 80 in weekly attendance. Uh, and then on a TBN interview, I saw that uh, you said, what if, what if that's not a problem? What if that's a strategy that God wants to use? Uh, could, what do you mean by that? Uh, as, what if that's a strategy God wants to use? Uh, yeah, great question. It, it, it's been said that the leader's first job is to define reality. And I, I believe that completely. We think the leader's first job is to inspire people or get them to the, wherever they need to go. No, first job of the leader is to say, where are we right now? And because uh, you can't move anywhere until you have an accurate picture of where you actually are right now. Um, so when you, you know, quote st- stats like that, that's the first job. Where are we right now? What, what, what is an accurate picture of the landscape? And an accurate picture of the landscape is that the church has always had a whole lot of small. Um, that's just simply the nature of it. The, the megachurch movement, while I have no problems with it, is a very new phenomenon and still a very rare phenomenon. We, we see them because they're large, but there's not that many of them. So you've got to look around and say, okay, if, in fact, for 2,000 years and counting, most of the church has operated 
in a whole lot of small groups rather than a handful of really large groups. Maybe that's not because we've been making mistakes. Maybe that's because that's the strategy God has been using. After all, for 2,000 years and counting, the Church of Jesus has been the most stubbornly and dramatically growing organism in world history. Um, so it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm the first one to notice our mistakes and our faults. But when you back off, you got to look at it and, and say, but Jesus said he'd build this church. He's doing a really good job on it, of it, and he's typically doing it through small. So I'm going to look at that small and go, okay, rather than looking at small as a problem, I'm going to look at it and go, if Jesus is doing this, why is he doing it mainly through small, and how can we participate better in that process? And uh, unfortunately, uh, most pastors of small churches don't think that way, uh, or that their uh, identity uh, would not be uh, supportive of that necessarily. Uh, now, we're going to spend most of our time talking about your book, Small Church Essentials, but uh, your first book was Grasshopper Myth, and right. uh, you said kind of the core of that is we were small in our own eyes. Uh, can you give kind of the backstory to that whole concept and that idea? Sure. Yeah, um, I, I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, and all of it in small churches. Um, but up until about you know like 10 years ago, I really thought I was a big church pastor, just hadn't arrived yet. Uh, you know, I thought this is just this is just a way station. But after over 20 years sitting there and waiting, you got to wonder maybe this isn't as temporary as I was thinking. Um, and 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 at first that really hit me hard, like oh man, I must not be good at this or something because this is kind of where I'm stuck. Because everybody, whenever your church doesn't get bigger, they don't use phrases like holding steady, they use phrases like stuck. So I thought I must be stuck. And I really saw myself as a failure. And um, the grasshopper myth, the title actually comes from the book of Numbers where the spies go into the land and they intended them come back with the report. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them, to the giants in the land. And so the premise behind the grasshopper myth is I saw a grasshopper in my mirror. I belittled my own church and my own place in it and it was only by overcoming that and realizing small is not something to, look, to be looked down upon. Small is part of the strategy God wants to use, and I need to figure out my place in that. And once my attitude about that changed, everything about it all changed. So that's where that comes from. Uh, and it's, it's a hard shift for, <laughs> for, yeah. for people to move to. I mean, I, again, part of our ministry over the last 14 years, we've, uh, I, you know, I've raised a monthly support and I speak uh, in uh, churches, but the reason I raise a monthly support, I've always said is in part so that I can go to any church, no matter the size, because, you know, a small church can't afford to bring in speakers. And so I've spent a lot of time in small churches uh, who wouldn't normally, you know, have outside uh, outside speakers and it's that it, that mentality is 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 hard to for people to get as a small church pastor when you uh, talk about uh, you said a congregation under 250 is the reason you picked I know you mentioned but why did you pick 250 as the number well, it's there. There's a thing called the 200 barrier, which I don't like the word barrier because that implies there's something wrong with being on one side of it. Um, but there is a big shift that does happen at around 200. They call it the 200 barrier. It lands anywhere between 150 and 300, at which if you're going to become bigger, you have to shift the way you pastor. It is the biggest shift um, in pastoring uh, methods for for size changes. There's a big shift at 50. There's a bigger shift. There's a big shift at 500 and at 1,000, but the one at 200 is the biggest shift of all. And so there's a whole lot of books and information about there, out there about breaking the 200 barrier. I'm not interested in that. I'm not good at it. I've never been able to do it. <laughs> so I didn't want to say from 200 and under, because the moment you put 200 on the cover of a church book, everybody assumes it's about breaking through that. So I had to pick another number, and I thought, <laughs> if I pick 150, then I'm leaving out a whole bunch of, uh, I'm leaving out churches of 150 to 200, which I think my book applies to. So we bumped it up to 250. So we'd include everybody, but we wouldn't make it, we wouldn't trigger the idea that it's a church growth barrier breaking book, because it's not. It's a, 
Uh, definitely, definitely, that's not the uh, the place you're landing. And by the way, I, I, after I finish this, and I I read a lot for doing this podcast, but when I finish this book, I, uh, and I since probably changed that statement, but I said to my wife, I I think every uh, church ministry type major in every Bible college in the United States should have to read this book. Uh, that should, it should yeah. be, it's re, it should be, re, I mean, just, uh, now I think, and on reflecting on it, I think it's probably, uh, most ministry majors would get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably would, uh, you probably have to give them five years in ministry and then hand yeah. them the book, but <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I I completely agree with what you're saying because my my when I first started doing this too, my first thought was I'm going to start pushing for Bible colleges to do these classes, and we got to get you know small church classes in Bible college. And then I thought back and thought, yeah, when I was going to Bible college, I wouldn't have gone to that class, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And and then I started wondering, and I I'd almost worry about any young person who wanted to, like, <laughs> oh, all I want to do is pastor a small church. It, it, when you're young, you ought to have that kind of, you know, take on the world mentality. And, and a lot of that is going to be not tempered by the maturity that comes with a few years of doing so. But I, I agree with you that I think this message, whether it's my book or, or not, it's not about my book, it's about this message. But I do believe that this message about the value of small churches and how many small churches they are needs to be uh, dropped like a seed into the hearts of everybody training for ministerial um, work. I, with the understanding that especially when you're young, most of them will just kind of roll their eyes about it and not really hear it. But then, like you just said, five years in, 10 years in at the most, when they realize, hey, my trajectory numerically is about the same as 90% of my peers in ministry. I'm not, you know, exploding in growth like I expected to. What was that one thing that one guy said that one time about small churches, right? And then they've got something to go back to. But otherwise, most of them are going to be like I was, where I'm searching in the dark and I don't even know where to look because nobody's ever said any of this stuff to me. So, uh, yeah, th that I think is where it needs to land. We need to do we need to realize that this idea about the value of small churches is typically only going to really take heart in people after they've gone through a, a, a few years of practical, practical pastoral ministry and have had the kind of taken the kind of knocks that most of us take and then realize, OK, I got to look at this in a slightly different way. So, uh, from that standpoint, one of our uh, my takeaways from the book is that uh, most pastors think of themselves on a uh, you know they're grading themselves compared to all the other pastors out there, and they're giving themselves you know am I uh, you know they look at the mega church pastor, they're an A, and you know I'm C, D, F, whatever you know uh, they're uh, and rather than uh, we're all on the same court and someone's a center and I may not be the center. I just have a different role to play. Uh, how do, because uh, you talked about already about there's well, early on, you were just thinking you were in a holding pattern till you, you weren't a small church pastor. You were just going to be eventually become a large church pastor. Uh, how, how do people make that shift or when do they need to, you know, I mean, what does that internal process need to be in order to uh, get okay with that? Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's different for everybody, but I think the, the main challenge for most people is going to be um, understanding that everybody has different gifts and different callings. And um, there is only need for or room for so many large churches. But there will always be lots of need for and lots of room for a whole lot of small churches. Uh, in my first book, I talk about the difference between peas and pumpkins. You know, you, you can eat your weight in peas or you can eat your weight in pumpkin. You're just going to have to eat a whole lot more peas. <laughs> and and, and so, so you, you, you need way more peas than you need pumpkins. It's just simply the, 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 the way the numbers stack up. So if if that and and that's the case with everything in life. So if it's that if it's going to be that way with churches, uh, then we have to look at that and go, okay. But if that's where the majority of them are going to be, uh, um, then then we need to be okay with understanding that. And then 
once we understand that, once we can kind of even begin to explore the possibility that maybe I'm called to be a small church pastor and not a big church pastor, even if you're not ready to completely buy that idea yet, are you willing to explore it is all I'm asking to begin with. And then when you explore it, you can begin to discover some of the great values in it. And if it turns out that that's what you're best at, then do what you're best at rather than striving for something that everybody else says you should be best at. And that, that I think is, once you realize this is, this is my sweet spot, this is, and, and, and when you take a look at it, if you ask the average pastor why they went into pastoral ministry, what is it that they wanted to do? Most of them are going to say things like, I wanted to you know, uh, love people in Jesus' name. I want to share the gospel. I want to uh, see my community uh, change for Jesus. Very few of them will say things like, I want to build a big, big building. I want to oversee a staff of multiple people. So the skills and gifts that typically draw us into pastoral ministry are the skills and gifts that are primarily needed for small church pastors. Very few of us are driven into pastoral ministry with a desire to do the things that you have to do when you're pastoring a big church. So if we look at that, we go, my gifts, my calling actually have a small church stamp on them. I got to be okay with that. <laughs> that's, that's so good. Um, if, since a lot of this audience, the audience uh, won't necessarily be pastors, uh, although there's going to be a percentage and we have that in the group. Uh, if you're a person sitting in the pew of a church of 250 or less, uh, what what is helpful for uh, that person to know about their pastor, or what do they need to be praying for their pastor that would be unique in a, a small church setting? The the primary thing that small church pastors face and that need prayer for is discouragement. Uh, it is. Uh, I was talking to a pastor the other day about they prepared this great sermon, and then it happened to be on a Sunday where even fewer than normal people showed up. And the statement we both agreed on was, it's as hard to prepare a good sermon for five people as it is to prepare a good sermon for 5,000 people. There's no difference. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's it's the same difficulty. So imagine yourself in your own job. If you are, you know, attending a small church, imagine yourself in your own job and you work just as hard, but, you know, how discouraged you are when fewer people show up or fewer people buy your product or whatever it is that you're, you're doing. And that is a continual source of discouragement for the small church pastor. They work just as hard as our peers in large churches. Um, but the numerical, um, the, the obvious numerical, uh, you know, feedback, uh, you know, in, increase just just isn't there. And that is something that can be very, very discouraging. So that's the first thing is, is pray for them with discouragement. Secondly, the time crunch in small churches is really, really significant. In big churches, you've got staffs, and so you can delegate the time-intensive tasks to staff members. But in a small church, the pastor themselves has to do the time-intensive tasks, such as somebody gets sick, and they, a, a pastor can spend 30, 40 hours a week sitting by the bedside of someone who's sick who's in their church, which means where do they, you know, when, when do they do sermon prep? What, what other things are they pushing off for that? And it's not that they don't want to be there with the sick or dying person. They want to be there, but they simply can't be in both of those places. And you had a lot of bivocational pastors who were working 40 hours a week at their paying job and then trying to do all of the pastoring with the quote-unquote spare time that they have after that. So discouragement is the biggest one. Time crunch is probably the second biggest thing to pray for for your small church pastor. Hey. Speaking of, uh, we'll, we'll jump here, since you mentioned bivocational pastors. <clears throat> I, I, I did bivocational ministry for 10 years. I know the, the unique pressures of that process. Uh, and, uh, and for me, now this is maybe being more vulnerable than I should be, but uh, for me, uh, part of the drive for the, from the church to grow was so that I could quit the other job. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. part of yeah. my uh, my motivation. Yes, I wanted the kingdom to. I wanted people to know about Jesus, but I also did not enjoy my other job and wanted to quit that. Uh, how how would you encourage a pastor who's who's in that situation? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, that is not too vulnerable. That is completely honest and is, uh, I, I'm not going to say universal, but it's pretty close to universal. Um, yeah, uh, to, to be able to uh, do ministry and be paid for ministry and not have to do another job to bring in an income, that's got nothing to do with greed or selfishness. That's simply, you know, wanting to do the best with the time that you've got and, and take care of your, your needs and your family's needs. That's a, a completely appropriate thing. So for those pa- pastors who are bivocational and have to work outside of the church ministry for a, gr- a number of hours of the, of the uh, week, uh, two things. One, um, you're not alone. There was this guy a lot of years ago called, I think, I think they called him the Apostle Paul. Uh, <laughs> Who did that? And he did it on purpose. When you read his writings about it, he chose to do that because there were some strategic advantages to that. So and so, don't look at it and think, well, I can't be effective because, well, uh, until you reach the effectiveness of the Apostle Paul, you can't say that. You know, uh, <laughs> kind of hard, kind of hard to argue that he was ineffective because the poor guy had to make tents during the day. Um, so that's the first one is yes, you can be effective uh, doing that. And the second one is I would really encourage bivocational pastors to look for the opportunities that come w- during your bivocational uh, hours. Um, if you only look at your, your secular work, your secular employment as what I have to do to pay the bills, then it will always feel like a drag. It will always feel uh, difficult. But if you look at it and go, okay, uh, I'm not... Uh, uh, like like Paul. Paul was not a tent maker who also preached. Okay, Paul was an apostle who chose to make tents, but his apostleship carried with him everywhere. And so the, we see we see significant evidence in the New Testament that both when he was making tents and when he was stuck in prison, he still did ministry in those situations, and in fact had access in ministry because of those situations that he could not have had if he had sat in a church office all day long. So. Yes, it's difficult. I do not uh, in any way diminish the difficulty that there is in being bivocational. And if you are striving to become, uh, to get out of bivocationality and be fully paid by the church, I cheer you on in that. You should move towards that. If you're able to, I, I celebrate that. But while you are bivocational, don't just sit in your day job wishing you were somewhere else. Look for opportunities there. Uh, put ministry first, even in your uh, place of secular employment. When you do that, you will then have an even better way to be able to speak into the lives of the people you're teaching who also sit in a secular job, work in secular work all week long. You will be able to be an example to them of how they can be a witness in their workplace too. Uh, that's very, <clears throat> yes. The Apostle Paul, if he, if he can do it, so can you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very good. All right. What a, one of the things with I've already mentioned that I you know I speak at a small church, and probably the moment that's most important, you know I'll speak on prayer and praying for your pastor, and then afterwards the service is over, me and the pastor go out for lunch, you know, and it's uh, we're at some Mexican place probably, and at that moment, you know I got a small window of time. And I, you know, and I've heard all the stories, uh, but if you were, and I'm guessing you've done this too, when you're sitting across from that uh, pastor who's discouraged uh, and you only got a little bit of time, uh, where's kind of your, you know, this, this is just helping me here. So the next time I'm at this Mexican restaurant, I have something to say, what, 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 what's kind of your uh, go-to encouragement for the small church pastor? Um, I shut up and listen. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a talker. I'm a writer. I've always got something to say and I've had to learn and I have to constantly remind myself that, especially when someone can potentially be frustrated or discouraged that listening, listening attentively and quietly is often a greater gift than anything I could possibly say. Uh, the main thing they need to know is that you're there with them, that you're paying attention, that you hear. Uh, it was one of the first lessons that I learned in pastoral ministry. I remember as a young pastor, not even not, not married yet, barely out of Bible college, still very, very young. And, you know, the first few counseling you know, appointments that I had, I just, they, you know, they didn't get 30 seconds of their problem out of their mouths, and I just went on for an hour with answers. And 
nobody came back for a second session. I couldn't <laughs> figure out why, because I got this awesome stuff. And uh, and then I was told, hey, just just listen for the first hour. And it was amazing how many times at the end of the first hour, with me saying virtually nothing other than, okay, I hear you saying this, uh, they'd go, no, I, I haven't been helped. In an, I, this is the best hour of counseling I've ever gotten. And I'm sitting there going, I literally didn't set, tell you anything. <laughs> so I, I would listen, 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 listen. And then, you know, based on hearing that, then uh, you can come in with, you know, potentially some advice or some help. But um, the, the, one of the biggest challenges small church pastoring is um, small churches are, are unique. Every small church, uh, every church has something in common with every other small church. So we can't deny what we are, our common values and our common principles. But the smaller the church is, the greater uh, the part of that church that is unique, the bigger the part of that church that is unique, which is something I talk about in small church essentials. So big churches can get together and can have and can have hours and hours of conversation and con- conferences and just share all the stuff they've got in common. Because if you got to figure out how to get everybody parked on a Sunday and you got to figure out how to divide your uh, departments into age groups and so on, there's a whole lot of that that's going to be in common. But if you're pastoring a church of 20 and another person down the street is pastoring a church of 20, you got two two very, very different churches because it's 20 different people in each church. And when the church is smaller, those personalities really affect the whole. So two churches of 2,000 are far more similar than they are different. Two churches of 20 are far more different than they are similar. So when we're trying to help a small church pastor, that's why I had to learn really early on. I've got some principles. I even put the I even dared to put the word essentials on the cover of my book. I mean, how dare I? <laughs> <laughs> but the only reason I was even comfortable doing that is because I've spent the last six years talking to literally thousands of small church pastors, talking to thousands and listening to hundreds. Um, and these are the things that were as universal as they can be for small churches. But there are very few universal principles. So you got to do a lot of listening and then you have a chance to speak into their specific situation. Uh, two things on that. First, uh, to the guy, guy or gal who's listening, who is uh, sitting on the pew. That's also a good, good advice uh, for dealing with your uh, your pastor. <laughs> Spend some yeah. time listening. Uh, take a. Uh, you know, sometimes you're frustrated. You think the church should do this or that or the other. Take, take them out for coffee and listen to them for an hour and see what their dreams and what their challenges. And uh, But the other thing uh, I want to touch, it wasn't in my notes, but I wanted to touch on because you, you brought up the, the difference between uh, a large church and a small church is conferences uh, now you get to speak at conferences so there's a uh, <laughs> you get to bring that i loved what the conference we were at together that you uh, uh, you know just talked about what the speaker on the main stage had said and dissected it for the small church pastor but uh, one of my challenges when i was pastoring was going to those uh, you know i uh, pastor gatherings and you'd hear the speaker from the big church talk and you're like oh yeah, yeah let, I'll solve my problem with a, just hiring another staff person that, that's that's how I'm gonna solve <laughs> solve that problem okay thanks and that's really helpful I'd like you know to get paid myself but uh, you know <laughs> uh, uh, how how would you encourage that you know because you and me although we'd like to cannot change conferences you know, around the country for pastors, uh, we'll work at it. But that's 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 a bigger fish to fry. Hey, how would you encourage the the small church pastor that you know still goes to the pastor gatherings, but it's almost more discouraging than it is encouraging uh, to process those events. Yeah, I in uh, I'm I'm not doing this to to plug the book, but because this is an audio podcast, I'm about to describe something visual. Uh, but in Small Church Essentials, I use this Venn diagram. So you got two circles, and the two circles overlap. And the circle on the left says Big Church Essentials, and the circle on the right says Small Church Essentials. And I came up with this diagram because uh, most diagrams that compare size look like either a ladder or stair steps, and that immediately gives you the impression of up must be better and down must be worse. 
So I wanted to come up with a way of distinguishing the differences without it making better, look, looking better or worse. So the Venn diagram, again, two circles with a slight overlap. And the way it works is the bigger your church is, the more overlap you have with other large churches. And the smaller your church is, the less overlap you're going to have with large churches. Makes sense, right? So the challenge becomes there is some overlap, which means if you're listening to a person speaking from a big church context, that is the circle on the left, uh, the smaller the church is, the less they're going to say that will be of value in your context. The bigger your church gets, the more they're going to say that will be of value in, their, in your context. That is not to say that what they're saying is wrong or bad in any way. It's simply in a different circle than yours. So the best way to get more out of big church conferences or books written by big church pastors, which, let's be frank, is 99% of what's out there, um, there is value in there for the small church pastor, but we've got to learn how to filter it to say, okay, this, this, and this is in his circle that does not overlap with my circle. And this here is in their circle that does overlap with my circle. And the only way I know to do that is to lean into and learn what is it, how is ministry different in a small church? Not simply so you can overcome it, but so that you can understand it and then filter all the other information better. Uh, I'm much, uh, I get much more now out of big church conferences and books by big church pastors than I ever used to because I've worked for a long time to understand the unique needs and values of small churches. And so now I have a filter to apply to what they're teaching to go. Those things don't apply, but this one does, so I'll take that home. So you've got to understand your context and then listen for your context when a big church pastor is speaking. There will almost always be something in there that you can take home, but just like a musician you know, uh, playing a, a, a trumpet, you're going to have to transpose from C, you know, uh, and, and knowing how to transpose will help you uh, in many, many ways in the future. Hey. So uh, shifting down into kind of a couple of the practice of uh, the book, uh, one of the things that you uh, mentioned that I, I just absolutely loved uh, is mentoring is better than curriculum. Uh, that uh, that you can accomplish different things. You can, uh, uh, but can can you just talk about that for a minute? What that means to you and what that looks like? Sure. Um, I mean, just like I'm not anti big church, I'm not anti curriculum. Um, so I want to start with that. Um, but uh, what we've done in the in, in the last hundred years or so, probably since the advent of Sunday school, which I think was about 150 years ago or something that the modern version or something close to the modern version of Sunday school was invented. I'm, somebody else can research that. And, but it's, it's, it's in, in the 2000 year history of church, what we now know today as Sunday school is a very, very recent phenomenon and has been a great blessing for many, many, many generations. So it's, I'm not anti-Sunday school either. But one of the unintended consequences of uh, Sunday school and writing curriculum is that quite often we think we're discipling people when all we're doing is getting them finished with the class. And what has often happened is that getting the class done has replaced discipleship rather than been a supplement to discipleship. And when you take a look at the New Testament, they didn't have curriculum. What they had was the most effective discipleship system ever devised. Jesus did it, the Apostle Paul did it, all of the early disciples did it, and it's mentoring. And mentoring takes two things. It takes, yes, the education that you can get from curriculum, but it has to be done in the context of relationship. That's the key difference in mentoring. It is, it is relationship-centric. So curriculum tends to be learning-centric, and if you have a relationship with the teacher, that's nice too, but you can really do it online and you're fine, right? So you can do curriculum that way, and you can download information, and there's value in downloading information. But that's not discipleship. That isn't. Discipleship requires relationship. And in fact, mentoring puts relationship at the center. And then if you've got a good mentoring relationship, then you can use curriculum. And curri curriculum does two things. It provides you theological guardrails so that you're not going off into a ditch of bad teaching. And secondly, it gives you timestamps so that you're not just taking forever and getting stuck on one thing. The curriculum tells you by this week, I should be on this next subject. And it gives you uh, some forward pro progress as well. But the, in, a, in a big church, um, 
it has to be more curriculum centric because like the main pastor can't have a relationship with everybody in the church. The church is simply physically too big for that. And that's not a put down. That's just a reality of numbers. But in a small church, the pastor can have more of a relationship with everybody. And if it's not the pastor, the pastor can disciple someone who can become a disciple maker. But mentoring should always be at the center of all discipleship, especially in smaller churches. And then curriculum can supplement it. Curriculum should never replace it. That, that was well said. Good well, thank you. <laughs> I I, this is very succinct. <laughs> it's almost like I've, I, it's almost like I've taught on that before. You, you, you should write a book. I think that's why. Right. Oh, there we go. That's the next step. <laughs> no, somebody should have suggested that to me before. <laughs> uh, now, in in fairness to this conversation, I, I just feel like I should throw this in. I actually attend a large church, so that I just, you know, I just... Well, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> right. I just do so much ministry in small churches, but hey, right. right. and this this one, this you quote Neil Cole, and right. now this, I don't know if people like this quote or not, but hey, you quoted it, so they we're just going to go with it. Right. The, the stats tell us that 10 smaller churches of 100 will accomplish much more than one church of a thousand. Right. <laughs> Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then he goes on to much more in particular areas. Um, but yeah, 10 churches of 100 typically will uh, baptize more new believers, typically will send more people into missions and full-time ministry, typically will raise more money for missions than one church of a thousand. Um, that's just statistically true across the board. Uh, there are some things that big churches can do better than small churches. For instance, they can uh, put together uh, resources for a big project much more quickly because everybody's in the same room. You present the idea, you take an offering or two, and you're done. Whereas if you've got to go around to 10 different churches, you've got some on board, some not, that kind of a thing. But when you put the averages together, 10 churches of 100 will typically do more of the basic ministry things than one church of a thousand. And that is, some of that is simply the nature of numbers. Um, when you've got, for instance, when you've got 10 churches of a hundred, that means you've got 10 pastors. Uh, one church of a thousand, you've got one lead pastor. You'll have staff pastors, of course, but if you've got 10 lead pastors in 10 churches, that means every, every one of those thousand people in over 10 churches of a hundred can have access to the lead pastor, to the main person who's preaching on Sunday morning. And that matters for some people. It doesn't matter for everybody. If you're attending a church of a thousand, you may never have met the pastor, and you may be fine with that. And I'm fine with that if you're fine with that. You can grow spiritually that way too. You're a part of a small group, and that's where you get to know people. That's great. But in, in 10 churches of a, of a hundred, you're going to have more direct access to the pastor, you're going to have more opportunities for ministry because you're going to need 10 people overseeing 10 different children's ministries department. So you're going to have those, those gifts can be used. You're going to have 10 different people or 10 different groups of people who are going to oversee the facility, who are, who are not going to be full-time paid to that, but they're going to do that on their volunteer time. So what you end up with is far more of the gifts of the people sitting in the pews get used in 10 churches of 100 than in one church of 1,000. In one church of a thousand, you're going to pay professionals to do most of that, and appropriately so for a church of a thousand. You don't want someone who decorates their house nicely redoing the lobby and the sanctuary and the church logo for a church of a thousand, right? That wouldn't fit. But in 10 churches of a hundred, you're going to have 10 people or groups of people who decorate their house nicely, who four or five times a year are going to change up the way the lobby and the sanctuary look to make it appropriate for the season, and they're going to get to use their gifts for that in an appropriate context. So yeah, there are a bunch of things like that that are great in, in, in a church, of, of, in a smaller church, and that's, as Neil said, what the statistics have shown uh, across the board for many years and in most denominations and in most countries as well. You, you mentioned gifts, and that's... Uh, uh, actually leads to my next question, which is, uh, now I know, I read the book, I, I know this is not the main point of the book, it just really jumped out at me and I wanted to talk about it, because uh, it's uh, you said, uh, 
you were talking about the idea of uh, the pastor having the dream versus uh, the dreams that God puts in each individual. And he said, you said, this, is, this may be one of the primary reasons for the growth of New Age, find your inner vision books, being gobbled up by otherwise Christian people. Uh, they want to know how to dream their own dreams. Uh, how would you, you know, this can be, this is not necessarily a big church, small church question, just a general question. How do you recommend people find, you know, dream their own dreams and f- get through that process of being who God has intended them to be in their their setting? It, it is a real fine balance because, um, well, let me just answer the question. Um, we, <laughs> or not, we, go on we, a tangent, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do the tangent later. Um, we need to start with what is God's will for me rather than what is my desire for me. And too often we start with what is my desire for me. So I am not against a book or a teaching that helps you discover what you do best and where you fit best in God's plan. My challenge with, as I call it, new agey or something, uh, my, 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 my challenge is with books that start with, hey, what do you want and what are your dreams and let's get God to rubber stamp those dreams. And that's the feeling of far too many things that are written even to a Christian audience. It doesn't start with God's will. It starts with my desires. I love the first four words of purpose-driven life. It's not about you. (laughs) I mean, Rick Warren dropped a time bomb on a nuclear bomb on the church with those four words. Right now, I know we got pro and anti Rick Warren folks out there. That's not my point. (laughs) My point is those four words. It's not about you. We have to start with what does God want for me? And when I discover that, then I first of all, I start with the general thing. Here's the here's the other part about that. What God wants you to do is what God wants. Ninety nine percent of what God wants you to do is what God wants me to do, too. We want to rush to the unique part. But the fact of the matter is, what God wants of you and me both is to, I don't know, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, be honest, right, share our faith, right? Once you've done all of that, then get back to me about what's so unique about you. And I'll get back to you with what's so unique about me. Because what actually happens is, when we do the basic Jesus stuff that we're all supposed to do, then somehow, amazingly, in the middle of doing the normal stuff, something very unique comes out because it's filtered through me and it's never been filtered through me before I came along. But we have to start in the right place. We have to start with what does God want all of us to do? What does God want me to do? And as I do that, lo and behold, oops, I'll discover that, hey, I'm doing something that nobody else is doing. That's how I came to where I am now. You know, one of the very few people in the world who are writing consistently about the value of small churches. How did I come to that? Because for 30 years, I just kept my head to the head down and kept doing, God, these are the churches you're calling me to. I'm going to do my best in these churches. And now after I've done it for 30 years, I'm going to write a little bit about it. And it turns out, hey, I've got a unique niche here. It wasn't because I tried to find where I was special. I was doing what everybody else was doing. And then when I wrote about it, it looks different because it's being filtered through me. If a Again, you, you're, you should write stuff. This is good. <laughs> I just, I, I, and and maybe maybe part of this is I, I just agree with so much of what you're saying. I, I have no comeback to the, these comments. I'm like, I, I finished yeah, reading your... We need your, to be arguing more. That's right. It's hard to have dialogue when I just say, yes, that's really good. You know, it's, it's, it's really... You know, go buy the book. You know, that's what I, I should just... But anyways, if... This is again uh, not something I plan on asking, but since you're you're seeing this is what you spend your time thinking about, uh, where do you see the small? Ch- I mean, uh, the small church. What you're saying is it is there a shift taking place? Is it uh, does it seem to be getting harder to get your message out, or is it getting easier? Is there uh, you know is there some resonance there? I, just curious and know what. Yes, 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 and yes. Um, 
it is um, from the very time I started writing about this, it was accepted much more quickly and by far more people than I expected. Uh, and I think that simply speaks to the size of the need and the lack of resources for that. So it's it's a, you know, a little bit of water on a very dry sponge kind of a thing. So I think that's a big part of it. Uh, secondly, I was really surprised that I, I've gotten very little pushback. Um, and I think some of it is because if you push back against my message, it's like you're beating up on the small guy. And you, you just look bad. <laughs> so they, they, they may be angry at me, but they're, they're saying it to themselves because they're going, man, if I put out there that I'm ticked off at this guy for helping small churches, I'm going to look like a jerk. Uh, so I think that's I, I think it has some some protection kind of built into that. I think that's part of it. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm seeing a greater acceptance of this idea than I did when I started uh, understanding that I'm doing this all the time. So I filter everything through that. So a lot of it could be colored by my own experience. I understand that. But even I think yesterday, day before this week, recently, Tom Rainer wrote an article, uh, that small churches are making a comeback, uh, revitalizing existing churches is becoming as important in a lot of denominations as planting was. Like for about 30 years, church planting was almost the only thing we heard about. And I am all for church planting. We ought to be doing church planting. Church planting has advantages that nothing else has for sure. But we did that almost at the complete expense of revitalizing existing churches. So even guys like Tom Rainer are saying it's coming back and that's good. So yeah, that is coming back. That is very, very helpful. Um, there needs to be a lot more of it, um, but I am seeing a greater acceptance of it. I'm seeing more resources for it, and I'm, um, and, and and I want to encourage as many people as possible to jump in the water here. Uh, I don't see anybody else who's writing or speaking or podcasting on small churches as my competition. There is no competition here. You know, somebody <laughs> said you're a big fish in a small pond, and at first I said no. I'm, at, I'm the only fish in an empty pond. It felt like I was all by myself. And that's never been the case. There have always been others out there, but so few that it really does feel lonely. But it, it, it's picking up, and I think it's in some very, very good ways, yeah. So our time is coming to an end. Do you have, I mean, we'll I'll link up to the book, and we want people to read that. And I, I hope I've established that I want people to read the book. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to have to pay all the other people who've been on the podcast something because I've not, I've endorsed your book a little higher. But anyway, I, if, I, what other ask would you have for the audience? Any final, both maybe for that uh, individual uh, sitting in the pew and for the pastor out there, uh, what final asks would you have for them before we sign off? Don't look for something else. Look for what you can do best where you are right now. That That is what changed the trajectory of my ministry, made it deeper and better than I ever could have imagined. For too many years, I was striving to be the next guy who could tell the story of building my church from nothing to something. And when I finally let go of that and said, it is this, and I'm going to make this the best thing I can possibly make it with God's help, that's when everything changed for me. And then I had something to tell others as well. So don't don't be looking for the next big thing. Uh, look at where God has you now and do that to the best of your ability. That is where you're going to find fulfillment, and that's where you're going to find great ministry. Wonderful. I... The name of the book is Small Church Essentials. The website is newsmallchurch.com. Uh, any other places online that you want to send people? Yeah, my name, Carl Vaders, uh, at Twitter and Instagram, and New Small Church at Facebook. Those are probably the easiest ways to get regular updates about what I'm writing, because um, I've, I've had the real amazing opportunity to be writing for ChristianityToday.com. So the new small church is kind of a window to get people to there where the actual blog sits. But the easiest way to do it is through those social media channels. Very good. Uh, as we wrap up, would you be willing to just take a, a 30 seconds and, and pray for that uh, pastor out there that uh, may be struggling today and uh, needs a little encouragement before we sign off? Yeah, absolutely. Lord Jesus, thank you for your church, for what you call your body. And just as... 
you and your word told us that the body has many parts and every part has uh, has something to do. Um, we who are in small churches have our part to play as well. And just like in a physical body, the small parts are no less valuable. In fact, boy, some small things when they go wrong can cause big problems and when they go right can bring great joy. Lord, that is the same in every ministry that's listening to this right now. So I pray for every discouraged small church pastor and member. I pray for encouragement for them. I pray that they would uh, uh, find a place, uh, or well, not find a place, but be, be uh, understand the place that they have been found in, that you have put them, and may great things happen because of what you are doing through us in the place we are right now. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, say thanks so much for being here. I, I had... Have I, I would love to. Maybe we'll have to get to a Mexican restaurant sometime and sit down. <laughs> you keep bringing that up. Uh, the more you do, the hungrier I get. Some oh yeah, days. it's it's almost lunchtime for you. I guess I'm. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, well, thanks for being here. I appreciate. It. God bless. You got it. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that today. If you're looking for the show notes, you can go over to enjoyingprayer.org and click on podcasts, and you can find them all there, along with other resources to help you on your walk with Jesus. If you are new to this podcast, why don't you subscribe so you don't miss anything? We've got some good things coming around the corner. Again, we, we just exist to be an encouragement to you in your walk with Jesus, to help you to grow in, uh, in the faith that he has for you and live that adventure that he has, the plans that he has, live a life of prayer that's fun and enjoyable. So you can find us online, again, at enjoyingprayer.org or on social media at enjoyingprayer. I would love to see you there. Uh, Again, my name is Kevin Senapati Ratna, and I pray that God bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. May you today find the joy of Jesus and all that he has for you, whether you're in a small church, big church, any size church, serve him with all that you have and go after him because he's worthy of our praise. God bless and have a great day.